Hello, I'm Lauren Foster. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast, the weekly series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. For the next few weeks, we're featuring episodes focused on equity investing. And for today's show, I'm joined by Paula Campbell-Roberts. She is head of alternative data and analytics at KKR. Not surprisingly, our conversation is all about alternative data and analytics. She is a treasure trove of information and leads the firm's efforts to incorporate big data and machine learning into many of its investing and value creation efforts. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Paula Campbell-Roberts, welcome. Thank you. Um, Thanks so much for being here. So you lead KKR's efforts on incorporating alternative data uh, into the investment process. So let's start with some, some level setting. What are we talking about when we talk about alternative data? And how do you separate sort of substance from the hype? It's a really great, great question. And thank you for having me. There is certainly a great deal of hype around alternative data and people mean different things when they refer to it. When I'm talking about alternative data, I'm talking about the new data sets that are available, credit card transactions, social sentiment, new analytical techniques from clustering of consumers to identify new cohorts, prediction, a Netflix recommendation engine. Um, And then there are more advanced techniques around computer vision or autonomous driving that combine both these new data sets and new analytical techniques. So that's the broad. So there's been an explosion of new data sources. Um, Can you walk us through some of the, the range? And I've seen there's individual activity, there's business processes, sensors. Just give us a bit more color on those. Sure. What has underpinned this new focus on alternative data has been this explosion of new data sources. Everything that we do is tracked, right? So if you think about uh, your activity on your mobile phone and any online purchases you make uh, from whether you like or dislike a product online or business transactions where you know, what they're shipping overseas is tracked by shipping companies and those companies then sell their data to investors to, to, to transact behind. So it's very wide ranging. So can you talk a bit about uh, your process of data analytics to identify themes that may be used in private equity or private credit, real estate, other types of private deals? How do you determine what alternative data to capture? And can you give us some examples of how you or your investment teams have applied the results of the data analysis uh, in the investment process? What's been most important to us is starting with the core investment questions that we're trying to answer. And what's different is we now have more approaches to trying to answer those very same questions. So it starts with partnering very closely with the deal teams who know the companies very well, are trying to figure out whether this makes sense from an investment perspective. And so we'll partner with them to answer questions around market growth, consumer behavior, um, business behavior, et cetera. And so from those questions, we then think about what ways we can triangulate around getting to an answer. Okay. Do you use machine learning or AI to help you identify the trends in the data? Machine learning, and this is one of the you know buzz hype words out there, uh, actually requires a very, very large uh, data sets in order to train the model so that it can learn and predict. Even for the largest private equity firms, you're not doing the number of deals on an annual basis 
with the variety that would be required to use machine learning in, in sort of your standard due diligence processes. Where our teams have found some success, and this is particularly with our capstone team, has been in our value creation business, where there you are working with individual companies and you are working with their supply chain information or their detailed customer transaction data. So where you have SKU level data cut across customers or businesses globally, that's where you actually have more opportunities to use machine learning or alternative or, or th that type of alternative data. But as I as I think about these new techniques, machine learning and alt, alt, alternative uh, machine learning and AI aren't the only sources of opportunity. They're more basic techniques around these new data sets and new prediction analytics that you can still use that aren't yet that aren't as advanced or complex as machine learning or AI. You've done a lot of work on demographics. Um, and I'd love to talk about this interplay between aging, tech disruption, and immigration and how that has fundamentally shifted some of KKR's investment themes. So can you tell us a bit about um, what are some of the long-term investment themes? And to start, I'd say that um, from a, a, a macro perspective, maybe 10 years ago, we used to be more solely micro-focused in our investments. And over the past 10 years, with the hiring of our of General Petraeus, of Henry McVeigh, we really started to develop this rubric around macro overlays and understanding bigger uh, shifts that might impact some of our investments. And this thematic investing approach is just one aspect of it. And so what you've mentioned um, around demographics, immigration, aging population, and technology, that has fundamentally changed some of the theories we might have about investing in certain sectors. So. What that has led us to believe is that growth will be slower in the future, labor markets will continue to be disrupted, and consumer behavior will change. So that is from the categories of spend that consumers focus on to the channels in which they make their purchases, and then also whether they decide to own, rent, or share those purchases. Those are all very different assumptions that we have today than we did 10 years ago. Well, the consumer behavior, that's a good segue because you've written a number of research reports and I guess your, your latest is titled The New Consumer. Yes. What is the new consumer? The new consumer um, is the asset light consumer. So by asset light, I think of that from a balance sheet perspective where they don't, they're not owning homes, purchasing cars but they are allocating more of their wallet to experiences and spending more on travel and the like, and they are technology enabled. So it's a very different setup of consumer that actually um, forces a reevaluation of the American dream because no longer are we talking about consumers who are focused on owning an asset, building wealth, and then drawing down on that wealth to fund education and et cetera. Instead, most people are renting and unfortunately are, are spending most of their income on some of these rental, rental goods and experiences. So from a supply and demand perspective, um, what are some of the trends that are driving this increase in the renting and sharing economy? And actually, I had a note to myself here that I heard something that you said in terms of housing, and you said, we're seeing the dismantling of the American dream. You said 35% of US households uh, now rent instead of own. That's right. It's really interesting. So, the, and it's good. It's great to frame it from a supply demand perspective. Um, 
from a from a housing perspective, I'll start there and then uh, transition to supply and demand. From a housing perspective, it's both an economically uh, driven shift to renting as well as a preference. So economically, post uh, following the global financial crisis, um, households just don't have the savings and the wherewithal to purchase homes. And millennials in particular who are entering their first time home buying age, they don't have the savings. They're burdened by student loans. And so they cannot afford a home. But then even on the preference side, uh, I think it was Pew Research who recently uh, conducted a survey where 66% of millennials said that they would want a home if they could afford it. But the remainder said that even if they could afford it, they wouldn't want a home, right? Part of that is driven by what we've seen in markets in places like Connecticut, for example, where if you had purchased a home between 2004 and 2009, today that home is still worth less than what you purchased it for. So for a millennial who's already you know, struggling to make ends meet, it just actually doesn't make rational sense. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> um, will the sharing economy ever make money? I believe it will. I do, you know, underpinning your question, there are certainly a number of models that are only focused on growth and sort of addressable market that haven't thought about a path to profitability or cash conversion. There's certainly a number of models that won't survive, but we've invested behind um, long-term models that we think will, that no, no, not only are capitalizing on these demand tailwinds, but are really figuring out scalable business models that in the long-term will be profitable. Okay, so to date, it seems like autos or transportation and the housing markets have seen the most disruption from the renting and sharing economy. Um, what other sectors do you expect to be disrupted? Well, if you think about what is true of the sectors that have been disrupted, and, and as we think about which ones are likely um, to be so in the future, it's areas that have a high acquisition or maintenance cost. So housing, autos would fall into that. Also have low utilization. You, you know, use the item infrequently. Um, there may be a societal or environmental impact that you can make from sharing or renting it and where technology can facilitate um, efficient matching. Uh, where I think that that setup is true of other sectors is probably in places like furniture, right? Especially expensive furniture with millennials who have uh, gig employment where it doesn't make sense to buy furniture today. Uh, Clothing is an area, especially on the luxury side, that has already begun to be disrupted. I think it, that makes sense in the future. Those are two areas that I think are likely to face uh, disruption or continued disruption. Um, are you looking at any areas of disruption in the financial services industry? Certainly. Uh, fintech, of course, um, where uh, functions that have typically been performed by banks, now technology players are starting to provide them. So that will likely continue. And I think um, as opposed to just uh, new tech players entering, you'll see more established players also think about how to use technology to hold on to some of their traditional businesses. Okay, great. So just a, a quick closing question before we wrap up. You know, we have a, a Women in Investment Management Initiative at CFA Institute. Only 19% of our our members are, are women. And I'm wondering, do you have any advice for investment firms that are trying to create more inclusive cultures um, and also trying to build more diverse teams? We know that you know, cognitive diversity drives investor outcomes. So any thoughts on that? Absolutely. 
especially now and you know what I've written about in my papers and what we focus on as a firm has been the disruption we're seeing in so many industries. Well, how do you anticipate disruption and think about what may come next or these sort of left and right tail events? Well, you need to have diverse voices and perspectives around the table to understand that because they are coming from some of these newer consumer groups that traditionally haven't been around the table. So it just makes good business sense to have a diverse uh, group of folks making those decisions. Great, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.